Lawyers dominated public life during the first third of American history. So clearly, those were very different times from our own. Uh, many attorneys who were prominent during the Civil War era had tried cases with and against each other before the conflict. The key members of Lincoln's cabinet were all lawyers, as were many diplomatic appointees and the five men who tried to end the war at the Hampton Roads Peace Conference in February 1865. Our speaker's new book, Civil War Lawyers, Constitutional Questions, Courtroom Dramas, and the Men Behind Them, examines the dramatic issues and courtroom theatrics that played their parts in the story of how the nation divided and went to war against itself. Arthur T. Downey has had, one might say, an eclectic career. He has been an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law School for a dozen years, a partner in two major national law firms, a vice president of two multi-billion dollar companies, an expert in foreign policy with the State Department in Washington and in Berlin. He spent three years working for Henry Kissinger at the National Security Council and was an assistant secretary of commerce. Mr. Downey is also an award-winning sculptor. A few years ago, he did a bust of Ed Bars, who some of you might know, nationally known Civil War historian and beloved tour guide. And that bust was actually installed at the National Park Service Museum in Vicksburg. And finally, he's been visiting our reading room, so we're getting to know him a bit here, to conduct research for his next book, which is about the Creole Affair, a slave revolt that began in Richmond in 1841. So clearly, as you can see, our speaker is a man who needs to branch out and expand his horizons somewhat. But we are delighted to have him here discussing his topic today, Civil War Lawyers, Constitutional Questions, and Courtroom Dramas. Please help me welcome Art Downey to the stage. Pen signing. Thank you all very much for joining us today. And thank you, Paul, for the lovely introduction, which spoke to half of what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, and I can certainly endorse the Hillwood Estate visit. It's just a marvelous um, facility and gardens. View the Japanese gardens at Hillwood. It's well worth the trip just to see that. Um, <clears throat> the Civil War era was one, as Paul said, where there were uh, where lawyers was a time when lawyers uh, were much more prominent than today. We think today there are too many lawyers. If you feel that way, you would have been appalled at the, uh, at the earlier period. During the first 100 years of our nation, 1789 to uh, 1889, we've had 23 presidents, 17 of whom were lawyers, dominated. In the last 100 years, from today going back 100 years, uh, the trend is reversed. We've had 20 presidents, only nine of whom were lawyers. It's the same kind of trend in the Congress. In the single term that Lincoln served in the House of Representatives, 1847-49, 74% of the members of Congress were lawyers. Today, in the 112th Congress, the leading occupation, business, the second 
leading occupation is kind of an odd one. It's public service politics, public service slash politics, and third is law. Uh, so you have had this complete change. It's, it doesn't seem that way, but it is true. Why were lawyers so prominent at that time? Well, in Europe, in England, the home country as it were, uh, there was the avenue for bright young men, women weren't involved unfortunately, uh, who wanted to advance themselves, who were capable but didn't have great money or great connections. The path was the clergy or the military. Well, in the United States, we had no established church and virtually no standing army. So those paths were closed. In addition, this was a time when there were only a very few law schools and admission, entrance to the bar, required the most minimal kind of uh, equivalent to a bar exam. So it was an easy path to move into. De Tocqueville, when he came to the United States in the 1830s, found that lawyers in the United States at that time naturally form a body. Uh, not that they agree on everything, but that their training was similar or the same. Uh, it doesn't mean they reached the same conclusions, or they, but they all read Cicero and Blackstone and Kent. Uh, they were aware of each other um, publicly. They, they practiced law together. They practiced law against each other. Uh, <clears throat> you know the famous case in 1855 when uh, there's a patent case involving the McCormick Reaper. And it was originally scheduled to be tried in Chicago. And so the lawyers for both sides said, you know, we really need a Chicago lawyer, a, a, an Illinois lawyer to help with the case. You always want the local guy. So they sent somebody to Springfield to get this guy, Lincoln, uh, and said, join our side and, and let's deal with this case. Well, for a variety of reasons, the case was, the location was changed to Cincinnati. So they didn't need a Springfield lawyer anymore. But nobody told Lincoln. And so he shows up in Springfield, uh, in, uh, sorry, he shows up in, uh, in Cincinnati. And the, the lead lawyer on his team was this fellow who was then practicing law in Pittsburgh, whose name was Stanton. And Stanton was brutally rude to him and, and the whole team ignored him. They wouldn't walk to the courthouse with him. Lincoln, you walk over there. We don't want you here. They wouldn't let him uh, cross the bar to argue the case. He had to sit in the back to watch the proceedings. And uh, uh, the main lawyer on the other side was Reverdy Johnson, who had been U.S. Attorney General and uh, U.S. Senator, later would become uh, U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, and he was the guy that three years later would win the Dred Scott case. These brilliant lawyers, and poor Lincoln was humbled and humiliated. And then, as we know, years later, when he was looking for a strong secretary of war, he went to Stanton and said, I'm the guy whom you humiliated. I'll, I'll hire you. Uh, so it was not surprising, as Paul said, that all of the members of Lincoln's cabinet uh, were lawyers, Lincoln's first cabinet, except the Secretary of War, and Lincoln dumped him before the year was out and replaced him with Stanton, a lawyer. Uh, and 
all of Lincoln's key diplomatic appointments were lawyers. In the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis's cabinet was composed entirely of lawyers. He was not a lawyer, of course. So the law during that period was sometimes the focus, the central focus of the decisions that were made. At other times, they merely contributed to shaping the events. And that's what we're gonna be talking about. Sometimes the dark side of the law was, was evident, as in the revenge trials after the, after the war was over. Uh, sometimes the lawyers were brave. Imagine being the lawyer for John Brown in Charlestown, Virginia, when you knew he had killed your neighbors. <coughs> Tough position to be in. Uh, or sometimes they were inventive, like General Butler, who invented the notion of taking escaped slaves and calling them contraband. In any event, it was the lawyers who articulated the law, who argued it, and who animated it. And that's what we're talking about. We can talk about lots of things from the pro-slavery nature of the Constitution, originally, uh, to Dred Scott and his decision. Um, that's the courtroom where, in the basement of the Congress, where the Dred Scott was case was decided ultimately. You can talk about the John Brown trial, very interesting. Herman Melville said it was John Brown's raid that was the meteor that ignited the Civil War. Got ahead of myself. Um, but uh, we can talk about those if, if you want in, in Q&A after, afterwards, but I'd like to talk about a couple of events that occurred in the first year of the war, uh, one involving civil liberties and the other involving international law. Um, let's begin with the first one. As you all know, probably better than I, somewhere between 625 and 750,000 Americans died during the Civil War. More than all Americans who have died in all the wars that we've ever had, from the Revolution, 1812, Mexican-Spanish War, First World War, Second World War, Korea, and on through the War on Terror, whatever that is. In today's terms, that's six million Americans. It's just mind-boggling. Where was the first blood spilt in the Civil War? Where and when? It wasn't at Fort Sumter. Nobody died then. It wasn't at Bull Run, Manassas. The first blood was spilt on Pratt Street in Baltimore. Let me explain why. Just a few days after the fall of Fort Sumter, <clears throat> April 1861, a regiment of Pennsylvania troops came down heading for Washington. At that point, the train travel from the north to Washington brought the trains to one station called the President Street Station. And at that point, the locomotive was un unhitched and a team of horses was connected to the cars, probably because the Teamsters Union said you had to have union drivers. <laughs> so the, the uh, uh, train pulled by horses moved along what is now the beautiful waterfront in Baltimore for a little over a mile to the other station at Camden Yards, which is the home base now for the baseball team, the Orioles. Well, this Pennsylvania regiment 
came along that way <clears throat> and a crowd of thousands appeared. Uh, and the police turned out 130 policemen to protect the uh, soldiers as they moved along the path to Camden Yards. It was a close call. It was a very tense. The governor and the mayor telegraphed President Lincoln and said, send no more troops. Regrettably, the president misunderstood what it meant. He thought they were saying, we don't need any additional resources. We can handle this ourselves. So nothing happened. The next day, Massachusetts 6th Regiment, 700 armed men, came to the President Street Station. The locomotive was unhitched. A team of horses hooked up, and they started across. These men were armed, and their rifles were loaded. The crowds were worse than the day before. Uh, pellets, bricks thrown. Uh, the commander gave the order to uh, uh, to dismount, shots rang out, 12 civilians and four Massachusetts soldiers were killed. That's the first blood spilt in the Civil War. That night, the governor and the mayor instructed the state militia, burn the railroad bridges north of Baltimore. We can't have a repeat of these soldiers coming through and these rioting, more people will be killed. We can't have that. Turn ahead a month. Let's focus on four days in the middle of May, 1861. Saturday afternoon in Washington at the apartment of Roger Brooke Tawney, the United States Chief Justice. Knock on the door. Two Maryland lawyers come in and say, and said, we are representing a man from Maryland whose name is John Merriman. We have just met with him in Fort McHenry. Ah, that's the Pratt Street riot or massacre, depending upon your perspective. Pratt Street in Baltimore. Tawny, at about age 82 then, when that was taken. They said, um, our client, John Merriman, was arrested this morning, at 2 o'clock this morning. He was in his bed asleep. Soldiers from Pennsylvania knocked down the door and came in and hauled him out and said he had burned the railroad bridges north of Baltimore. He lived north of Baltimore in a town called Cockeysville, his home is now a golf course and a country club. Um, and uh, he said, John Merriman says, yes, he burned the, the railroad bridges uh, because he was ordered to. He's a local farmer, but he was an officer in the Maryland State Militia, and he was ordered to burn those railroad bridges. Um, Tawney listened to them and... and uh, um, Tawney had a unique relationship with Fort McHenry. His late brother-in-law, Francis Scott Key, wrote the poem that is our Star-Spangled Banner. 
at Fort McHenry. Uh, the lawyers explained that when they visited John Merriman at Fort McHenry, he signed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, and the lawyers gave it to the Chief Justice. The writ of habeas corpus is an ancient uh, right to protect liberty. It's, it directs a custodian, usually a jailer, to present the person who is being held to a judge and explain why they're being held. It was so important, and is still so important, but it was so important to the drafters of our Constitution that it is in the Constitution, one of the very few. And at that point, the founders, the drafters of the Constitution thought, as long as we enshrine the right of the writ of habeas corpus, we don't need a Bill of Rights. It was before a Bill of Rights, they were unnecessary. It was that important. We were talking about a Saturday afternoon. Sunday, Tawny went up to Baltimore, uh, and he went into the court. He ordered the clerk of the court to issue the writ to the commanding general of Fort McHenry, General Cadwallader. Uh, and the writ said, General, you need to come to court Monday morning and bring John Merriman with you. The U.S. Marshal served the writ that afternoon, uh, and so everybody was waiting. General Cadwallader, before the war, was a lawyer in Philadelphia, and his brother was a, a Philadelphia, a, a federal district judge in Philadelphia. The next morning, Monday morning, 11 o'clock, Chief Justice comes in and sits down. Court starts, and in comes a Colonel Lee, a decorous, young, handsome soldier with a red sash and a sword. And he said he is uh, here to read a statement from General Cadwallader. And then he proceeds to read the statement that says, um, I, General Cadwallader, was authorized by the President of the United States to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Um, and I have done so, and I am not going to appear, and I'm not going to produce John Merriman. Tawny, and, and, and the colonel also said, the general would like you to postpone further hearings until he can get further instructions from the president. Tawny said, the general has acted in disobedience to the writ. And so he signed a writ of contempt, gave it to the marshal, to serve on the general, come the next morning, general, yourself. Tuesday morning. Whenever Tony went to Baltimore, he stayed at his daughter's house. His son-in-law there was a prominent Philadelphia lawyer, a Baltimore lawyer, and he always stayed with them. As he was leaving the house, her house that morning, he said, there is a significant risk, perhaps a likelihood, that I won't be home tonight, that I will be in Fort McHenry. Now that wasn't being silly, because in the months ahead, the mayor of Baltimore, the chief of police, uh, 31 members of Cong a, a member of Congress, 31 members of the House of Delegates, uh, newspapers, editors, publishers, were all thrown in jail. It wasn't idle speculation on his part. So that Tuesday morning, Tawny got in his chair, 
the marshal reported to him and said, I went to the fort to issue the writ of contempt. The general wouldn't open the gate. I couldn't serve it. Tawny, probably a bit theatrically, said, what? Uh, and he said, I don't want to make remarks from the bench that might be misunderstood. I will write a memorandum of my view so that I'm not misunderstood. A few days later, Tawny's memorandum opinion appeared. 20 pages. It focused on the president's claim to have the right to suspend the writ himself without authorization of the Congress and the right to delegate that authority to suspend the writ of habeas corpus to a military officer and to leave it to that military officer to decide whether or not he would obey judicial process. Tawney noted also that the president did all of this in secret. He never notified the courts, the police, or anybody else, the newspapers. This was a secret. Had there been a military coup, what was going on? He said, if the president claims a unilateral right to suspend the writ, then the Constitution has given him more power than the Queen of England has today. She cannot suspend the writ. The president has exercised a power which he does not have under the Constitution, said Tawney. <clears throat> However, Tawney did leave a, uh, sorry, a face-saving way out for Lincoln. He said, it's possible um, that the general, General Cadwallader, had misunderstood his instructions uh, and had un unintentionally exceeded his authority. Nice avenue. Then the Chief Justice said, I will send my opinion to the President to determine what action he wants to take. Essentially, he was saying, I am the Chief Justice of the United States. I interpret the law and advise what the law is. The President is the Chief Executive of the United States. It is his job to execute the law. Chief Justice to Chief Executive. What other options did Tawney have? Well, <clears throat> he could have done as the general asked and suspended further proceedings until the general had time to get new instructions. However, there had already been enough time between Saturday morning and Tuesday afternoon for the general to get instructions. There is a telegraph. Tony may have also felt that the gravity of the issue, the clarity of the wrong, that John Merriman's liberty had been imperiled, that the military has usurped power, perhaps, and the judicial process was flaunted, and therefore he had to take immediate action. I don't know, and nobody knows why he did it, but that was an option for him, and my hunch is that's the way he worked it out. He could have instructed the marshal to assemble a fort and storm the gate. But, obviously, somebody could get hurt, somebody could get killed, uh, and that's, so that wasn't a really good option. Another option, theatrical option, Tawney could have gone to the fort himself and nailed the writ to the, the <laughs> gate like Martin Luther, uh, but CNN wasn't around then, so there was, <laughs> no point in doing that. 
my sense is that Tawney acted too quickly. Uh, John Merriman was not in mortal danger. I've stood in the cell where he was, and it was a nice room with a nice view of Baltimore Harbor. It's not bad. Another week would have given Lincoln the chance to create a plausible cover story uh, of, of misunderstood instructions. So I think he acted a little too quickly. Lincoln's response. That's right. Silence. Week after week after week after week. Fourth of July. He sent a detailed message to the special session of Congress. As you know, at that time, these messages to Congress were sort of like our State of the Union is today, only they were written documents. The message uh, read by a clerk was mostly about events since the spring, since Fort Sumter, the secession, legal and political arguments against secession. The message contained strong and powerful and pithy statements and phrases. It accused the South of insidious debauching of the public mind and engaging in ingenious sophisms. It showed the hand of a confident political leader. Then, in the message, Lincoln turned to the John Merriman problem. Not by name, he never mentioned John Merriman's name. The tone is different, it's awkward, it's strained, it's in passive voice shift. It said, quote, it was considered a duty, not I decided, it was considered a duty to authorize the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. But the legality and propriety are questioned, not saying by the Chief Justice of the United States, but they are in direct sense questioned. And he offers a plea for a sympathetic response. Again, in the indirect passive, it was not believed that any law was violated. And then he passed the ball to Congress to determine whether there should be any legislation on this subject. That was it. Oddly, at the end of the message, he said, it is possible that the Attorney General will issue an opinion on this matter. Well, lo and behold, the next day, Attorney General <coughs> Bates, Edward Bates, terrific lawyer, competitor for Lincoln during the, uh, the nomination process four years before, uh, two years before, uh, Bates issued a 20-page opinion, which was an example of fine lawyering when your client doesn't have a really good case. <laughs> Bates ignored much of Tawney's opinion, which dealt with English history on the, on, on the writ of habeas corpus, U.S. experience, a textual analysis about where the writ of habeas corpus appears in the Constitution, etc. And Bates basically argued the president has the power to arrest and detain anyone whom he suspects might be holding criminal intercourse with the enemy. And in any event, this is a political question, not a judicial question, and the president conveniently is the chief political officer. In effect, Bates said, the writ of habeas corpus is a quaint technical legal writ it has to move aside for national security. Do you hear any echoes of that today? 
very interesting story. Well, did, did Lincoln have some alternatives? Yes. He could have taken the escape route offered by Tawney and told General Cadwallader that he had misunderstood the instructions, even though they were crystal clear. But that risked a public defeat for Lincoln at Tawney's hands. Even though Tawney was vilified in the North um, and nobody would come to his defense, this was not a time to be seen to be knuckling under to someone like Tawney. He could have asked Congress to ratify his suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, but he didn't do that. Whatever happened to John Merriman, who was out there at Fort McHenry? Well, on the 4th of July, that same 4th of July when Lincoln sent his message to the Congress, who shows up um, at Fort McHenry? Secretary of War, Cameron. And who does he meet with? John Merriman. Surprise, surprise. Note that the general who arrested Merriman was from Pennsylvania. Cameron was from Pennsylvania. General Cadwallader was from Pennsylvania. Eight days later, uh, and all these, those three guys understood politics. They were politicians too. Eight days later, the Attorney General sends a letter to the District Attorney in Baltimore enclosing a letter from Cameron, Secretary of War, directing Merriman to be released from Fort McHenry. Merriman was immediately indicted in a civilian court in Baltimore and released on bail. He returned home. He admitted the whole time, yes, I burned the bridges north of Baltimore because I was ordered to do so as a member of the militia, and the government ultimately dropped all charges. Thus, Merriman case ended just as Chief Justice Tawney had insisted. The military handed him over to civilian authorities, judicial authorities. We don't know, wouldn't you love, I would love to be a fly on, to have been a fly on the wall when these guys met with Merriman on the 4th of July at Fort McHenry. But you can imagine them saying, all right, John Merriman, let's do a deal. We'll release you, we'll let you go. Keep your nose clean, have no correspondence with anybody in the South, stay at home, don't do anything to undercut the Union, and don't sue us for false imprisonment. We don't want a court case on this, and we'll let you go. After the war, <clears throat> John Merriman was elected treasurer of Maryland, was a member of the House of Delegates for several years. Fast forward three and a half years, Chief Justice Tawney dies, a month later, John Merriman's wife gives birth to a son. Guess what they named him? Yes. Roger Brooke Tawney Merriman. Okay, let's shift from the, the famous civil liberties case to the war at sea. And I'll deal with two events. <laughs> Two events, one involving maybe piracy. On April 15th, just after Sumter, President Lincoln issued a proclamation which in effect was a declaration of war. And two days later, Jefferson Davis issued a proclamation explaining the duty of all 
Confederate citizens to uh, repel the threatened invasion. And then he invited applications for letters of mark and reprisal uh, in order to harass and capture northern shipping. What's a letter of mark? Well, it is an unofficial, I'm sorry, it is an official commission by a government to private people, a ship in this instance, to prey on merchant shipping of an enemy. This is long part of international law. It is a practice that started in the 16th century. During our American Revolution, the Continental Congress issued hundreds of letters of mark to privateers to go out and attack British shipping. Uh, it is enshrined in the Constitution. The Congress has power to declare war and to issue letters of mark and reprisal. During the War of 1812 that we're celebrating this year, uh, the President commissioned 526 vessels as privateers. Uh, indeed, the work of the privateers during the War of 1812 was a big reason why the British finally called it off uh, in 1814, because their insurance companies were unhappy trying to insure merchant vessels, because our guys were going after them. Just a couple of years ago, um, Congressman Ron Paul, uh, late presidential nominee, uh, aspirant, uh, introduced the Mark and Reprisal Act. And his point was, he, he introduced it several times, uh, but was, hey, we have the power to, to authorize the issuance of letters of mark. Let's do it now to see, let private people seize the property of Osama bin Laden. And more recently, Let's empower private people to go out under, under conditions to go after the Somali pirates that are threatening shipping off Aden. It didn't get anywhere, but he was pushing it. Um, the Confederate law was very careful. Uh, it laid out an administrative procedure, people to apply for a commission uh, they, they had to identify the ship, the crew, the investors in it. The motivation for a privateer, somebody to want to do this, is kind of a mixed, some patriotism, some adventure, and some just greed. Because when they caught a merchant ship, they had to bring it to a prize court in a Confederate port. The ship and the cargo would be sold, taxes paid, and then the investors and the crew would divvy up the proceeds. So there was a little greed in it too. So we had two ping pong games of, of, of the Lincoln Proclamation, April 15th, Jefferson Davis's Proclamation, April 17th, saying letters of mark and reprisal. Lincoln came back on, on the 19th. Uh, he installed the blockade of the South at the time, but he also referred to these letters of Mark, and he called them pretended letters. And he said, if anyone acts under those pretended letters of Mark, and that person or ship molests a U.S. vessel, he will be amenable to punishment under the laws of piracy. Tough stuff. A month later, Queen Victoria proclaimed British neutrality in our war which, as a result of which, 
the British recognized the belligerent rights of the Confederacy and the legitimacy of the Confederates' letters of mark. The British were horrified at Lincoln's threat to hang the Southern privateer if any US vessels were threatened. The Lord Chancellor of England said that would be murder. Tough stuff. The first privateer commissioned by the Confederacy was called the Savannah. And it was commissioned in May. In June, it was captured off the South Carolina coast and brought to New York, condemned as a prize, and the crew was sent to prison. Uh, in early July, Jefferson Davis sent a letter to President Lincoln and said, let's have a prisoner exchange. You give me the crew from the Savannah, and I'll give you some of our POWs. And he also said, if you hang any of the crewmen from the Savannah, we'll execute the POWs we're holding. Of course, Lincoln didn't reply. And the Savannah crew was indicted for piracy. The New York defense team, uh, defending, when I talked about the courageous lawyers sometimes, uh, the defense team in New York was a courageous group. How many of you were lawyers, just roughly? Just a few, okay. Um, the defense team included Daniel Lord. Those lawyers will know the famous law firm of Lord Day and Lord. Uh, Algernon Sullivan of the famous current law firm of Sullivan Cromwell and the best criminal lawyer in New York at the time, James Brady. The trial was put off until October. In July, Sullivan wrote to the Attorney General of Virginia to get documents. He wanted copies of the letters of mark that were issued by the Confederacy. Well, shortly before the trial was to start, the Secretary of State, Seward, had him arrested, had the Defense Council arrested, thrown in jail for having correspondence with the enemy. It was hardball. Um, finally, he let him go just before the trial. And the trial was tough because these lives were at stake. This is now not, ab not abstract, but, but very real. Basically, the defense team said, the issuance of a letter of mark by the Confederacy is a complete defense to any charge of piracy. In any event, under the law of piracy, there has to be demonstrated an intent to steal. That's what pirates do. There was no intent to steal here because they had to bring the captured ship to a Confederate port before a prize court. So it couldn't happen. Uh, it, the, the other side, of course, the prosecutors said exactly the opposite. And the case ended up in a hung jury. Ironically, at the same time, almost within two weeks of each other, the second Confederate ship that was taken, privateer was taken, was the crew was brought to Philadelphia and there was a similar trial, two different judges who had different instructions and a different worldview. And there they were found guilty of piracy and were scheduled to be hanged. In November, just after the trial, the Confederate Secretary of War at that point, Benjamin, Judah Benjamin, directed that the highest ranking POWs held in Richmond would be held in prisons now, not in POW camps, held for execution. Uh, the message got across. 
So in early December, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution requesting the president to engage in prisoner exchanges generally, saying this doesn't mean we're recognizing the Confederacy. This is a humane thing to do. And as a result, the Confederate privateers were moved to POW camps and then later released in a, in a prisoner exchange. Southern privateers were never again held for piracy charges. The other war at sea case I'd like to mention involves an incident off the coast of Cuba in the fall of 1861, same year later on, which provoked the most serious diplomatic crisis of the war and brought the United States and Great Britain to the brink of war. The focus was international law. Confederate general, Confederate president, that's not the Confederate president, but he commissioned two new ambassadors, envoys to Europe. James Mason, the great Virginia grandson of the founding father, George Mason, the author of the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, and a former U.S. Senator, and the other, uh, he was supposed to go to London to be U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, and John Slidell of Louisiana, originally from New York, but of Louisiana, a Senator from Louisiana for 12 years, he was gonna go to Paris. In Louisiana, spoke French, you go to Paris. Uh, absolutely key diplomatic appointment, both lawyers, of course, key diplomatic appointments. They, they wanted to get recognition. That would resolve everything. Uh, so they got their commission. They got through uh, Charleston, made their way to Havana. And then on November 7th, they left Havana on a British mail packet called the Trent, HMS Trent, headed for England, for Liverpool. Enter the stage, this handsome devil, Captain Charles Wilkes, U.S. Navy. He was commander of the USS San Jacinto, plying the waters off the Caribbean at the same time. His spies found out about the plan in Havana for Mason and Slidell to get out on the Trent to go to England. And he knew, and his chief officer reminded him, that it's a flat violation of international law to take passengers from a British ship in international waters between neutral ports. It's a violation of British sovereignty. But this was too good of an opportunity for Captain Wilkes to pass up. There may have been a personal element involved because years before, Wilkes is from New York, as was John Slidell, and they both had quarreled over a young woman. And so, this was his chance. Therefore, November 9th, Wilkes sends two shots across the bow of the Trent, and Wilkes takes Mason and Slidell and brings them to Fort Warren in Boston. In the North, the capture of Mason and Slidell just caused this great outburst of celebrations. It was the killing of Osama bin Laden in effect. He became a national hero, northern hero. 
got a, the House of Representatives ordered a gold medal to be struck in his honor. The governor of Massachusetts and the mayor of Boston held, held dinners in his honor. And the cabinet was thrilled, because you remember up until this point, the North had lost about every battle. It wasn't going well, to put it mildly. So this was just a heroic event. Everybody was thrilled. Except for Montgomery Blair, who was the Postmaster General, uh, Dred Scott's lawyer, by the way, and he said, Mr. President, it's a violation of international law. Uh, and the President said, you know, practicing in Springfield, Illinois, I didn't do a lot of international law. Uh, but as it turns out, Blair, Montgomery Blair lived in his father's, his father's former house, Blair House today, right across from the White House. And he had as a guest, Gustavus um, Fox, who was the equivalent of the Chief of Naval Operations at that time. And so he and Fox used to talk and, and Blair explained this case and Fox said, oh my God, this is crazy. It's a flat violation of international law. Any ship captain knows that, you can't do that. And if the Brits are really angry, we're finished. We can't, we can't deal with this. So Montgomery Blair brought that outlook into the White House for conversations. The British were indeed angry. They figured the Union's losing every battle and therefore to capture Matt Mason and, and uh, Slidell was a violation of international law and our sovereignty, but just, just trying to make everybody feel good, that's terrible. The British Foreign Secretary, Lord Russell, was as anti-American as our Secretary of State, Seward, was anti-British. Not a good combination. Russell prepared a very bellicose message, instruction to the British ambassador in Washington. At that time, all such instructions from the foreign secretary had to go to the queen, Queen Victoria, for sign-off. And at that time, the intermediate stop was the hands of Prince Albert, who was her sort of guardian of all things. Prince Albert was dying and died just weeks later. He got this violent instruction and he took his pen out and he toned it down. Got to the queen, she signed the toned down version. And in her memoirs, she makes clear that she treasures this document, the original, which were the last handwritings of her beloved Prince Albert. The instruction to the British ambassador in Washington was, if the Americans fail to apologize and release Mason and Slidell after this ultimatum in seven days, you, British ambassador, get out of town because war would follow. The British sent 15,000 soldiers to Canada to prepare for the invasion. They sent off a flotilla with 600 guns on it to harass American shipping from the Caribbean to the Pacific. Um, Secretary of State Seward sent a message to the US ambassador in London, uh, Charles Francis Adams, the son and grandson of a president and a lawyer, and said, explain that Wilkes had not acted under instructions of the US government. Nice, good holding action, smart diplomacy. On December 12th, 1861, 
Adams reported from Washington, from London, that, quote, all preparations for war were proceeding. December 18th, the New York stock market crashed. Price of gold went through the roof. Lord Lyons held the ultimatum in Washington for a few days, but on December 23rd, he officially handed it over to the Secretary of State. Christmas morning, December 25th, 1861, cabinet met to discuss Mason and Slidell and the British threat. Merry Christmas. Uh, Seward said, Mr. President, we've got to release these guys. I know it, it's been a great, this is like releasing, or by, by, uh, by saying seal, seal, SEAL Team 6 didn't do it for Osama. And the president was unconvinced. And just then, the French ambassador walks in and announces that the French government has decided to be in lockstep with the British on all these matters. Well, that kind of ended the argument because you can't have the French and British against you. But Lincoln said, look, let's meet tomorrow. And in the meantime, I'll try to draft an opinion for the best argument about why we shouldn't do this. This is something Lincoln learned in his first law law firm job um, in 1837 uh, when the senior partner said, look, if you really want to succeed, you need to understand the other side's case. And the best way to do that is to write out what you think are his best arguments. Get yourself in the head of the opponent. So the next morning, December 26th, cabinet shows up. Lincoln said, let him go, and Seward said, well, I, you know, where's your writing? I thought you were going to write out the arguments why we should not let him go. And Lincoln said, I tried, but I couldn't think of a single good legal argument why we ought to keep him. So the deal was cut. Uh, Seward said, we will not apologize, but we will acknowledge that Wilkes acted not, inconsistent, not consistently with international law. The cabinet was unanimous in agreement. January 1st, Mason and Slidell were released from the fort in Boston, boarded a ship for England. The British said the matter is closed, war was averted, and the law was complied with. This is an example of where the law uh, played a significant role, but wasn't really decisive. As Lincoln said, he put his finger on the main other factor, one war at a time is quite enough. I'm running short on time. Let me just leap through ending slavery because you're going to have these wonderful programs on the Emancipation Proclamation. Just do a real quick one on it, and then we'll have time for Q&A. That's Secretary of State Seward, former governor of New York, prominent lawyer. Ending slavery. Uh, real quickly, in 1860, there were a little over 4 million slaves in the United States out of a population of a little over 30 million. On May, March 4, 1861, in his inaugural address, President Lincoln dealt head on with the issue of slavery, ending slavery. He said, quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it now exists. I believe I have no lawful authority to do so and I have no inclination to do so. Now Lincoln had trouble with some of his generals on lots of factors, but one was on the freeing the slave issue. 
He had it with General Fremont out in Missouri in August, and then General Hunter uh, along the South Carolina coast. Who, uh, General Hunter issued a proclamation freeing slaves, which provoked Lincoln to repudiate both generals, but in the case of General Hunter, he repudiated by issuing his own proclamation. The president did. May 19, 1862. Uh, he, in this proclamation, specifically repudiated General Hunter's action, which he called it a purported proclamation, and said it was altogether void. But he used the occasion, Lincoln used the occasion, to put forward his own plan to end slavery. And this, I think, is relatively unknown, although it's, it's, it's clear as a bell. Lincoln's view, slavery, emancipation, should take place involving three factors. One, it should be gradual, none of this sudden stuff. Two, it should be compensated. And three, it should be accomplished by the votes of the people. This is what the British Parliament did in 1833 when slavery was abolished in their colonies, and that was Lincoln's pitch. And he stuck to that pitch and hammered it home. In his proclamation of that May 1862, he literally begged for acceptance of his approach. You have to have in the back of your mind the music of a Puccini opera when you hear the words that he said in his proclamation, quote, I beseech you I beg of you a calm consideration. The change contemplated, gradual, compensated by vote, would come as gently as the dews of heaven, not rending or wrecking anything. Will you not embrace it? President of the United States pleading for his pitch. Six months before, he tried his approach in Delaware tiny Delaware, 1% of its population was slaves. If this is gonna work anywhere, it's gonna work in Delaware. He drafted legislation, state legislation, got Delaware's sole congressman uh, and said, can you get this in? It provided for gradual emancipation to be completed in 1893 financed by U.S. government bonds. And his pitch was to the Delaware folks, hey, if you guys are smart, it's kind of a used car salesman, if you guys are smart, you slave owners, take this deal. It's hot, it's on the table right now. You know slavery's gonna end sooner or later, and when it does, your slaves are worth nothing. And we, you know a large part of your wealth is tied up in your slaves, take this deal today. Buy the mattress today. It didn't work. Ironically, the Delaware congressman that he used to help him with this wasn't reelected in Delaware, not surprisingly. So Lincoln appointed him a judge. He later was the judge at the second trial of John Surratt, Mary Surratt's son. Very interesting. Um, two months after that May proclamation, he called a special cabinet meeting, July 1862, and he handed out a handwritten draft of an emancipation proclamation uh, designed to free slaves in the rebel-held areas as a military necessity. Uh, 
His message was all slaves in those areas were to be forever free. It, the plan didn't reach to the border, state, border slave states like Maryland and Delaware and so on because he didn't think war powers would work. His war powers would work where there wasn't a war. So um, he put it out there. What do you say, cabinet? Bates said, you know, it's a good idea, but you really need to add mandatory colonization. You can't have all these freed blacks, freed slaves around. It won't work. Our society just can't handle it. We've got to have them go out. Secretary of War Stanton said, smart military move. I get it. Let's do it. Secretary of the Treasury Chase, later Chief Justice, said, you know, we're going to have legal challenges. We're going to get court. It's going to be tough. Why don't you not do it, but have your field commanders do it so that if there's a legal challenge, it'll be out there and it won't hit the White House, something we know about too today. Uh, Postmaster General Montgomery Blair said, I'm opposed. Don't you understand? We got elections coming up just a couple of months and we're going to get trounced. You put this out there, everybody in the North is going to say, all oh, those freed slaves are going to travel North. We can't have that. Seward, Secretary of State, said, it's a good idea. I'm all for it. But the timing is terrible. We've lost every battle. If we issue this, if you issue this thing now, the British and the French and Spanish and everybody is going to think we've really lost. This is an act of desperation. And they'll intervene to prevent horrors. So they all talked. Um, and as Paul said, September 17th, Battle of Antietam wasn't much of a victory, but it, it was enough to allow Lincoln to issue it. Uh, so he called his cabinet meeting on the 22nd and basically said, here it is. It will be issued today. Uh, and it's going to be final within 100 days. I, I will make it final. We'll see if they respond. The, the reaction to this preliminary Emancipation Proclamation was sharp. Let me just read to you briefly the reaction of the Times of London, the most powerful, influential newspaper in the world at the time. It said, quote, Mr. Lincoln wants to excite servile war in the states which he cannot occupy with his arms. And when the blood begins to flow and the scream and the shrieks come through the darkness, Mr. Lincoln will wait until the rising flames tell that all is consummated. And then he will rub his hands and think that revenge is sweet." Close quote. They didn't like it. <laughs> Blair was right about the impact on the, of the preliminary emancipation document on the elections. 31 Republicans in Congress lost their seats. Democrats were elected governors in New York and New Jersey and even Lincoln's Illinois. Lincoln said, he felt like the boy who stubbed his toe while running to see his sweetheart. He was too big to cry, but too badly hurt to laugh. The sharpest challenge to the preliminary proclamation came from former Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Curtis of Massachusetts. He was the guy in the Dred Scott case who dissented and wrote an eloquent, brilliant dissent. He issued a, brill a blistering critique of the suppression of civil liberties and overreaching of executive power. 
Curtis himself was anti-slave, pro-union, pro-war, and so had credibility. As the kids say today, he had cred. Uh, this is what he said in part. Quote, with what sense of right can we subdue them by arms to obey the Constitution as the supreme law in their part of the land if we have ceased to obey it in our part of the land? An executive proclamation cannot repeal valid state laws. All the powers of the president are merely executive. He cannot make a law. He cannot repeal a law. Military power is not a power to prescribe rules for future action. Uh, on December 1st, exactly one month before the final Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st, Lincoln delivered his second annual message to Congress. And as I said, that was the functional equivalent of the State of the Union. He proposed then, December 1st, three amendments to the US Constitution to end slavery. And it contained, his amendments dealt with the three elements that he's been pushing unsuccessfully. One amendment said, every state shall abolish slavery by 1900 and shall be compensated in US bonds equal to X dollars, he had a blank, dollar sign, blank, slave. All slaves who have gained actual freedom shall be forever free. And Congress may appropriate funds for voluntary colonization. Um, needless to say, his proposed amendments to the Constitution went nowhere. The cabinet met on December 21st, 29th and on New Year's Eve for final review of the proclamation. Blair said, okay, it's gonna be in there put something in there that says to the slaves, all right, you're gonna be free, but don't harm anybody. Don't, don't get too angry. Chase said, it's fine, but you gotta add something about God. Uh, God and justice, that's, everybody likes that, that's important to add. And he did. Uh, Lincoln underlined sort of, I'm doing this because of military necessity. He took out the part about the slaves should be forever free because he didn't know that he had power to make them forever free. So he just said they should be free, leaving ambiguous whether they might not always be free. Uh, New Year's Day, he issued, he signed the proclamation. And w when you see it, it there's sort of a scrawly handwriting. That's because all presidents then held a levy on New Year's Day and he spent the day shaking hands and his hands shook. And when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he said to his cabinet, uh, people are gonna think I was nervous about signing this, it's just that my hand hurts. You remember the famous and stirring Gettysburg Address, and you may remember the gracious Second Inaugural Address. Do you remember Lincoln's eloquent speech about the Emancipation Proclamation? No, there wasn't any. The Emancipation Proclamation is about as eloquent as a bill of lading. Uh, that's because he was threading a needle. Uh, the drafting of the Emancipation Proclamation is an example of where the law was a, a significant factor in shaping the end result. 
I might just give you two points to speculate, especially when you go back, uh, uh, when you have the program on the Emancipation Proclamation. Let's assume you're in the cabinet a couple months later, hypothetically. The president comes in and said, I've drafted another proclamation, fellas. Uh, now, this proclamation will give title to the former slaves in the South of the real estate, the plantations, that were owned by the former slave owners. This is based on military necessity because the new property owners would have an incentive to resist the rebellion and support the war effort. What do you think about that? Or, a month or so later, the president comes in, I've got another proclamation. This one says, it authorizes every former slave in rebel-held areas to treat any resisting slave owner as criminals, capture them, and if necessary, use force against them, including deadly force. State laws on homicide are suspended. Sort of lays it out for you. Uh, I've gone over my time now. We've, we've talked for a full hour, and I promised Paul we'd have enough time for Q&A. So why don't I stop there? We can talk about anything else during this period if you'd like, but I'm, I'm happy to entertain any questions on anything that we've talked about and anything else. Thank you. If you have to scoot, please do so, but if you'd like to stay for a couple of questions, we'll take a few from the floor. I have a microphone. My colleague Graham up there has a microphone as well. Just wait for him to come down your side. He'll be right there. Walt, right here. You've mentioned uh, uh, revenge trials, and I'm sure there were some in the aftermath of the Civil War. Was there any precedent from that in our previous wars, and did they carry over to things like Nuremberg and military tribunals in today's That's a very good question. And I suppose in prior wars, uh, it's hard to find a comparison because we really didn't have, I mean, the others were not civil wars. So, uh, so, so, so they were fought on the sea or fought elsewhere. The, 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 the short answer is no. Uh, and when I say revenge trials, um, that was my term. It's not a helpful term I appreciate in this instance. I'm talking about the trial of the Lincoln conspirators I'm talking about the trial of Jefferson Davis. I'm talking about, or I should say, the non-trial of Jefferson Davis. He was never tried in full uh, and lived a happy life after, after Fortress Monroe. Uh, I'm talking about the trial of Captain Wirtz. Captain Wirtz, Andersonville. Captain Wirtz's trial was the only trial uh, under the laws of war. The others were viewed as domestic legal issues. For example, uh, in the trial of the co-conspirators of the Lincoln assassination, the eloquent defense by Robert E. Johnson, among others, uh, unlike the movie, uh, the Robert Redford conspirator, uh, he said, these are civilians. Uh, we're not on a battlefield. This shouldn't be a trial of civilians by military officers. The Constitution guarantees any American citizen a trial by jury with independent judges. You 10, uh, you 9 judges and jurors all report to the president. 
You're all military officers. Only one of you is a lawyer. Uh, this is not a fair trial. This is crazy. Um, the prosecutor, Joseph Holt, um, basically said, and, and the attorney general, when the attorney general, Speed was his name then, after Bates, uh, was asked just before the trial started, is it legal? We want a, a formal uh, attorney general's opinion, is it legal to try civilians by military commission? And he said, yes. That's all he said, orally. <laughs> then two weeks after the trial, he issued his opinion, his written opinion, that said, hell yes. <laughs> and, and these people don't understand. They're being tried under the laws of war because the president was the commander. And they tried to kill the president. That's a military act. And it's not treason. Reverend Johnson had said, wait a minute, these people are tried, are being tried for treason. Treason is a civilian crime under the Constitution. Civilian courts deal with that. Anyway, there were no, no other kind of precedents out there. Um, the big thing that did have a long-term significance that I didn't treat, because uh, it's kind of too technical, is the so-called Lieber Code. There was a uh, Austrian-German immigrant, Augustus Lieber, who was a professor in Charleston, then he moved to New York and was a professor at Columbia. And uh, the president and one of the generals asked him to draft a code of war, basically. And he produced what was called then the Lieber Code, which later was taken into all the Geneva Conventions are based on the Lieber Code of 1863. So that, that was the, the, the reach that went out into Nuremberg and elsewhere, uh, Professor Lieber's Code. Thank you for a wonderful lecture. Uh, I did have a question. Although Lincoln repudiated the two Emancipation Proclamations, Gideon Wells, the Secretary of Navy, was already accepting slaves. I'm sorry, he repudiated? Or Hunter and... Ah, uh, sorry. Uh, those previous, uh, uh, and Fremont. But uh, when I was wondering what influenced Gideon Wells in accepting slaves into the Navy prior to the Emancipation and Benjamin Butler uh, the famous contraband of war well before the emancipation, what influence that had on the president's thinking? Uh, not much. Um, free blacks uh, and some slaves had been uh, employed by, used in the U.S. Navy for years. That, that was a naval tradition. Um, they were never provided weapons, but they were the cooks, they were the stevedores, and so on. So, so that was kind of kept as a separate deal. Um, uh, the idea of, of arming freed slaves, of uh, arming northern free blacks uh, was a delicate one. Um, but ultimately, it, it, it was successful. And, uh, um, uh, but I don't think Gideon Wells, and the, who was a very influential and extraordinary guy, but I don't think his actions with respect to the Navy was a significant influence on this. And Benjamin Butler. Benjamin Butler, uh, we discussed at lunch, kind of an oddball guy, a lawyer from Massachusetts who became a general. Uh, and <clears throat> he was at Fortress Monroe when three slaves came across 
and said they had been used by their master, Colonel so-and-so, to dig fortifications, and they were free. Butler's lawyer's mind, you could see the light bulb going on, and he said, huh, they're property, and they're being used like, a, like an ox or a cart in the war, so that's contraband. I can take your property. And he signed a receipt and sent it through the lines to the colonel whose slaves he now had. And then the word got back, and three days later, there were 20 slaves. And then there were hundreds of slaves. And the army ran out of food, ran out of work for the freed slaves. And he wrote to Secretary of War uh, uh, Cameron and said, what do I do? And Cameron basically said, take it easy. You know, don't, don't encourage this stuff. Just sort of go away. Uh, so it was such a touchy deal that nobody wanted to get too close to it. Uh, was the loss uh, of Virginia's western states legal? Question was, was the loss of, uh, or, the, or the creation of the state of West Virginia, was it legal? Um, when, you know, there were at that point uh, three states of Virginia. You had the Confederate state in Richmond, you had the so-called restored state of Virginia in Alexandria, Virginia, that was located under the barrel of a Confederate artillery, of a Union artillery. And then you had the West Virginia crowd. And when Congress passed the act to, to accept the West Virginia state, Lincoln called his cabinet together and said, I would like you all, you each, to give me a written opinion on whether this is constitutional, should I sign this, whether it's constitutional, and whether it's expedient. And everybody wrote to him. Bates, his great attorney general, came back <laughs> his marvelous opinion and said, no, it's not constitutional, <laughs> and it certainly isn't expedient. Uh, we know that this restored state of Virginia sitting in Alexandria is a rump government. It's not real. We know that. It's sort of a government in exile. And they cannot consent to the dismemberment of the state. It's a phony. We all know that. Uh, and you must be very cautious to disembody one of the original founding states of our nation. Pretty strong. And uh, others had some mixed views. Stanton said, yeah, let's do it, because I need that, that territory to move my troops back and forth. Um, and <clears throat> so in the end, Lincoln said, well, I know there are people who say I'm against secession unless it's secession our way. <laughs> and he said, but the way I look at it is you're either seceding for the Constitution or against the Constitution. So he signed it. Is it legal? The Supreme Court never squarely touched the issue, but they, they spoke on over several years, over decades, on several parts. Is this county in or out? There was a dispute about how many counties uh, were part of the New West Virginia. There were disputes about uh, payment, uh, the uh, allocation of money uh, between Virginia and West Virginia. Some of that went on into, I think, 1910 arguing it, but there never was a clear 
statement on whether that secession of West Virginia was constitutional. Similarly, the secession of the whole Confederacy. There was a Supreme Court decision in 1871, Texas v. White, um, which was a, an argument about Texas state bonds. It was sort of a commercial fraud I issue, but central to the decision was whether or not the secession of Texas was constitutional. And the Supreme Court said, yes, uh, I'm sorry, said no, it was not. So that, that's as close as we come to secessions. In modern times, the closest we've come is uh, 1998 in Canada, where the Supreme Court of Canada issued an advisory opinion on the Quebec effort at secession, at independence. And the Supreme Court of Canada basically said, no, you can't do it. Uh, the most, most, most recent was a year and a half ago, the International Court of Justice in The Hague had a case involving the secession of uh, Kosovo from Serbia. Uh, and, this, and the International Court of Justice uh, decided that was a legitimate secession. Anyway, any other questions? Well, I'm, I'm going to call it here, but thank you uh, very much, Art, for sharing this with us today. Okay. Thank you.